I'll just pray for you and for me before we start. Uh, thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have revealed yourself to us in your Son and through your Word. Uh, we pray that by your Spirit uh, we would understand your Word and receive the message gladly. Um, may it transform us and help us to live lives pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, Amen. So you're in the middle of a series or at the beginning of a series uh, commemorating 500 years of uh, the Reformation. And as I understand it, you did Scripture alone last week, is that right? And uh, today you've got uh, grace alone. Uh, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone next week, and the following week by Christ alone, I assume. And then the final week to the glory of God alone. And uh, my, my topic's a different angle on grace alone, if you like. I'm going to talk about the theme of being known by God, partly because I just wrote a new book and uh, that's what's on my mind, uh, but partly because it's a great uh, way of underscoring the fact that salvation is an unmerited gift, that it's undeserved love, as our friend was saying uh, from her hospital bed so movingly a few minutes ago. So the idea of being known by God is quite neglected, I think. Many of you will possibly have heard of a book um, but that by J.I. Packer called Knowing God, and I think knowing God is this theme that drives us forward in life, stops life from being futile and without purpose. Um, and it's true that the Bible says hundreds of times that uh, life's great goal is to know God. I want to know him, Paul says in Philippians 3. On the other hand, of course, every, side, every relationship has two sides. So we not only want to know God, but God knows us. And Packer in his book says that it's even more important that God knows us than that we know him. And if you look right throughout the Bible, the theme comes through quite consistently. So Abraham was known by God. Um, uh, the prophet Jeremiah, Moses uh, were both known by God. The nation Israel were known by God. And then in the New Testament, it's also underscored in a lot of ways that each of us, if we come to faith in Christ, are known by God and by Christ. So, for example, in Galatians chapter 4, Paul says to the Galatian Christians, at one time you didn't know God, now you do know God, or rather you're known by God. See how he kind of corrected himself there. And then um, at, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says to the Corinthians that, uh, now you know God in part, then you will know him fully, just as you are fully known now by God. So God knows each one of us personally and intimately. And then the text, two texts really, that underscore the grace of God in connection with this theme. Uh, one is that the final judgment speeches, uh, quite sobering texts in the Synoptic Gospels in Matthew, Mark and Luke, where Jesus says at the last judgment to those who are condemned, I never knew you. So uh, the theme of being known by God is really about the fact that uh, we know God because he first knew us, just as we love God before, because he first loved us. Uh, we, are, we call on God before, because he first called us. So the theme of God's initiative, his, gener his generosity and kindness towards us, is underscored by the fact that he knows us. Now, drilling down even further, uh, I'd like to think about the theme that 
God knows each one of us by name. And that came through in the John 20 passage. That's the passage we'll be looking at. Remember the the bit where Mary doesn't recognize Jesus and he says her name and that kind of clinches it. Uh, I don't know what you think about names. I I just love names. And uh, in in my job, I I meet a lot of people and uh, I've learned not to say glad to meet you because often it comes back, they'll say, well, we actually met already a couple of weeks ago. So I don't say that. I just say, great to see you, is, is my way of getting around that. Um, the other thing about names, of course, is um, it's, it's a very personal and intimate thing. In some cultures, you go from being on formal uh, terms, where you would call me Mr. Rosner, yep, and then we'd get to a point where I say, let's call each other by first name, you can call me Brian. I had a year in Germany once on a study leave, and they commemorate that moment through having a drink together. So there was a point at which Matthias, my friend, we were playing chess, I remember the time, and he said to me, Brian, let's call each other by first names. It's actually a different word for you in German, the more intimate way of referring to your friend. And uh, we raised a glass, whatever we were drinking, and uh, said, uh, Matthias, Brian. And it was marked very uh, formally at that point. Now, we're not like that in Australia. The way we express intimate friendship and personal relationship is usually by changing someone's name. You ever noticed that? So I learnt this morning that Shabu, which in and of itself sounds like a nickname to begin with, <laughs> is actually known as Shubs. Can't imagine why, but there you go. And at college, sometimes to my face, sometimes behind my back, students will call me B-Roz. It's kind of my street name. If I were a rapper, I'd be B-Roz. Um, others have called me the Rosniak. And uh, a good friend um, of my 11-year-old son worked out that an anagram of Brian Rosner is brain snorer. (laughs) So that's what he calls me. Um, So nicknames and pet names often indicate a closeness of relationship. Very often in a family, there'll be pet names uh, for the different members of the family. Even It seems odd, doesn't it? Even though we that's where you get your name through your family somehow they 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 grab it and change it or give you a different one Uh, the name of the main character in Winnie the Pooh is actually Edward Bear did you realize any Winnie the Pooh fans am I just talking yes just one up the back excellent so Winnie the Pooh is uh, Edward Bear and he goes by his nickname Pooh Bear in the book however Tigger who has this interesting relationship with him, Tigger's a really annoying friend, um, calls him Buddy Bear, and Christopher Robin calls him Silly Old Bear. Yep. So there is something about names, isn't there, that, that connects people in a, in a really profound way. Uh, middle names are interesting too, aren't they? So uh, um, you don't know someone until you know their middle name, I reckon, and it, it, it can be quite embarrassing to learn someone's middle name. My middle name is Aloysius. It's not actually; it's Stephen. But uh, <laughs> but it would. It, there are people's names that are like that. That uh, you find out something about them. In Australia too, we tend to lengthen names. So Hughes becomes Hughesy, and uh, Bird becomes Birdie. Um, but if you can't lengthen it, you'll shorten it if uh, necessary. So there's, there's something about names. The bottom line is that names are important 
and it's important that someone knows your name it's a sign of someone knowing you personally and intimately so I think in the light of that fact that the Bible says that people know that, that, that God knows people's names is really significant he has this book of life in which <clears throat> a kind of heavenly register of our names that uh, he, he has from the beginning of time again underscoring the grace of God salvation is such a gift that he has our names recorded even before we were born <clears throat> and as we'll see having your name known to God or Jesus brings certain benefits and uh, obligations if you like could you throw me my drink just there uh... okay didn't trust me to catch it so we'll move now to uh our passage in John 20 <clears throat> it's a it's a passage in which someone's name is very important it's the post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to Mary Magdalene outside the garden tomb it's a climactic scene in the gospel of John Mary's the first person in John to encounter the risen Jesus and the first person to proclaim the good news of the resurrection now I teach John at college um, and I tell students that for full colour surround sound viewing of the Gospel of John you've got to read the whole thing so you can't just pick one bit out on its own because it kind of builds on itself as you read along so I'm wondering if we could just turn to John 1 1 no I'm kidding so but that's what I would do if you were going to really feel the force of this passage and appreciate it for all its colour uh, you'd need to start at the beginning so what I'll do is instead I'll point us back to earlier passages in John so I tell students you've got to read like a snowball rather than a bowling ball so a bowling ball kind of just rips through John and knocks down verse after verse whereas a bowling ball kind of does it cumulatively as we go along now this it all of us know this because when you read a novel you'll be reading along and you'll see some what seems to be an incidental detail and then you'll read later and realize that was really important yeah and your mind will go back to that earlier passage and the whole thing is enriched by that connection happens with movies as well so Nat and I saw a movie recently um, I've tried this in other settings no one else has seen this movie but uh, and, and I'll just try the sense of an ending has anyone seen the sense no not a single person it's a good movie so at the beginning of the movie there's a scene where the mother there's a car driving away and uh, three people in the car and the mother waves like this now believe it or not that that changes the whole movie by the end of the movie you think back to the end you think oh my goodness I didn't realize the significance of that so that's what John 20 will do for us we'll see earlier parts of John that will end up being much more significant than we initially realized now the story of Jesus and Mary Magdalene in John 20 shows us five things about this theme of being known by God. So it's usually do three. Um, we're going hard today, so five points in this sermon. The first point is we see in verses 11 to 13, Mary weeping. <clears throat> Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept, so twice we're told already, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? A third time we're told she's weeping. 
She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus but did not know it was Jesus. And at the beginning of verse 14, Jesus says to her, why are you weeping? So four times Mary's tears are mentioned, twice by the narrator, the person telling the story, once by the angels and then once even by Jesus. So there's a real tenderness to this passage and Mary's tears are something that that are underscored for us. Jesus comes to Mary and knows her in the time of her sorrow and despair. And we weep, we cry for all sorts of reasons. Some people are better crying at, at crying than others. Um, but all of us uh, cry at different points over loss, some really uh, difficult uh, disappointment, over some loneliness we're suffering, some troubles in our lives. Uh, Mary's tears were about the absence of Jesus. She'd been with Jesus at his crucifixion just a couple of chapters earlier in chapter 19 and uh, now that Jesus is gone she weeps uh, one of the uh, commentators on the book of John puts it, uh, tells us that maybe this alludes back to Isaiah 25 verse 8 because as we'll see Jesus wipes away her tears in Isaiah 25 verse 8 it says he will swallow up death forever The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. So the first point, friends, is a really simple one. Mary's weeping is a focus and Jesus coming to her wipes away tears because he has swallowed up death forever. And then in verses 14 and 15, we see Mary seeking Jesus Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus, and she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? So Mary's seeking, you might think, is is just uh, uh, not that important. But in, in John's gospel, seeking Jesus is a really important theme. The first time the verb to seek is found is way back in John chapter 1, where Andrew and Philip uh, approach Jesus and Jesus says to them what do you seek and uh, they find the Messiah we found the one about whom Moses wrote in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote but if you look right through John all sorts of people are seeking Jesus and they don't find him Jesus is kind of uh, like a rugby league player ducking and weaving and sidestepping I used to do that uh, and you do know what rugby league is I'm from Sydney I'm sorry about that So uh, on on my way to school, I used to uh, sidestep the telegraph poles. And Jesus is kind of like that. Sometimes uh, people are seeking him and he'll disappear through the crowds. And people seek Jesus for all kinds of um, inadequate or wrong reasons. Um, Back in chapter 7, Jesus says, You will seek me, but you will not find me. So up until Mary's search in our chapter, in John chapter 20, most of the examples of people seeking Jesus in John show them doing it for wrong reasons. And when it comes to this theme of seeking Jesus in John, it's only right at the beginning of the book, in John chapter 1, and right at the end, in John chapter 20, that we find successful seeking for Jesus. So John opens with Jesus asking Andrew and Philip, what do you seek? 
and it closes with Jesus asking Mary, whom do you seek? And it's only the last occurrence of this verb that corresponds to the first. So this is kind of that little waving moment in John, right back in chapter 1. And of course, finding Jesus is everything because we find Jesus who loves us and laid down his life for us. But notice it's more about being found than it is about finding Jesus. Again, this is a point about grace alone. When we come to faith in Christ, we think we've uh, decided to trust in Christ. We've thought it through. We've been moved to do so. The truth is, it's God finding us. It's Jesus finding us. We do have to respond, and we do respond. That's true. But the initiative is with God, which is what the grace of God underscores. The third thing we see in our passage is that, Jesus, uh, is that Mary is known intimately and personally by Jesus. See verse 16. Jesus, up until this point, Mary doesn't recognize Jesus and thinks he's the gardener. It's a kind of case of mistaken identity. Jesus says to her in verse 16, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Raboni, which means teacher. So the single word of her name said in the way that she was used to hearing it made all the difference for Mary and uh, it brought home to her that she was known by Jesus and in the presence of Jesus. I think that's true sometimes with the way we say each other's names. Have you ever noticed that? One of my best friends named uh, Frank and uh, um, I came to the theme of being known by God through some really difficult circumstances in my life uh, back 20 years ago. And Frank, uh, when I came back to Australia in the year 2000, living in Scotland at the time, would ring me every week just to see how I was and to catch up with me. And uh, Frank, um, uh, sometimes I'd say I'd had a difficult week for this reason or another, and he'd say to me, he said the same thing last week. So he wasn't the most sympathetic person in the world, but there was a sense in, in that being known by Frank um, made a difference uh, to the difficulties that I was going through. Now, when I, I still speak to Frank regularly, so when I ring Frank, he'll pick up the phone and I'll say, Frank! And he'll say, oh, good day, Brian. So just the way I say Frank, there's no more words need to be said. It kind of says it all. And another good friend of mine pronounces my name just with one syllable. Brian, is he. That's how he says it. And uh, it, it, I'm not sure about that, but... Uh, that's um, Richard Gibson, the principal of another theological college um, in Australia. So I think there is a sense in which intimate friendship and relationship is often signalled by the way we say someone's name. And that's exactly what we get in this chapter in uh, verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. Uh, Don Carson, one of the commentators on John, draws out the significance of this exquisite moment and makes it a connection back to an earlier chapter in John, John chapter 10. This is what he says. Whatever the cause of her blindness, the single word Mary, spoken as Jesus had always uttered it, was enough to remove it. Anguish and despair are instantly swallowed up in astonishment and delight. It's an amazing moment for Mary. Can you imagine it? 
And as we saw, Mary answers Jesus in her customary manner, calling him Rabboni, indicating her relationship to Jesus as a disciple and acknowledging his authority. And interestingly, the first disciples way back in John chapter 1 also initially respond to Jesus as rabbi. So you've got another kind of echo from earlier in John. Jesus knows those who belong to him. He knows us by name. It's really a a reunion of friends we see in John chapter 20. Um, uh, In another part of the New Testament, uh, the Apostle John in 3 John 15 writes, Greet the friends by name. And for Jesus, it's a reunion of one of only four friends who stood by him in the, uh, in the hour of his death at the cross back in chapter 19. Mary was there. Three of them were named Mary, as it turns out. Now, we might read a passage like this and say it's a lovely moment and we can see the intimacy and wonder of it. Um, we might think to ourselves, well, good for Mary. Her tears have gone She seeks Jesus and is actually found by Jesus. He calls her by name. Uh, But what about you and me? Does Jesus know each one of us by name? Uh, Excuse the dad joke. But is it just that there's something about Mary? Okay. Um, So John chapter 10 is the passage that makes sense of this scene in John chapter 20 and you don't have to turn there but many of you will remember it it's the parable of Jesus as the good shepherd it's one of the so-called I am sayings in John where Jesus says I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for my sheep Uh, in John chapter 10 Jesus tells a parable of sheep and shepherds to teach about the relationship of the people of God uh, and its leaders So the Pharisees are not doing well as leaders of the people of God. And Jesus contrasts himself with the Pharisees. If Jesus is the good shepherd, the Pharisees are the thieves and robbers who climb into the sheep pen and do not use the gate. And the picture is, um, this happened in the ancient Near East. Um, You'd have a big sheep pen with a whole bunch of sheep in there. And a shepherd would come to a different point um, near the gate or along the sides of the pen and call out for the sheep, his sheep, to come to him. And they would come because they knew his voice and they would come to him. And uh, in John chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, Jesus spells it out. He says, the gatekeeper opens the gate for the shepherd and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name. Now, that doesn't actually happen. They didn't have names for their sheep. But Jesus kind of spins out the metaphor, the parable to bring home the point he leads them out when he has brought out all his own he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice and I think we see an illustration of that in the story with Mary Magdalene meeting Jesus after his death and resurrection so in the flow of John's narrative the gospel of John the parable teaches us that Jesus comes to the sheep pen of Judaism and calls out individually people for his new messianic flock but Jesus has others in mind so we're not merely spectators when it comes to being known by Jesus Jesus addresses the readers of the gospel to reassure them that he knows them by name too he says in verse 16 of chapter 10 I have other sheep that are not of this pen that's one of those very rare moments in the bible where God 
through the Bible addresses not just the characters in the, in the narrative in front of us, but all of us. I have other sheep. That's a great moment. Your heart should be lifted there. Yep. I have other sheep. And you, you people, amazingly, are among those other sheep. And John 17 has another similar note. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So do you hear Jesus' voice? That's the question. Uh, because if you do, he knows you by name and will call you by name. And the parable goes on to compare the relationship of Jesus to his sheep to the relationship of Jesus to God. Did you get that? So Jesus and his sheep are like Jesus and God. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. So Jesus' relationship with his Father illustrates the shape and nature of his relationship with us, his sheep. And the point is Jesus knows the people of God just as intimately and personally as God knows his son and the son knows the father. If you come to college, and I hope you all will, uh, we, we, there's a, a, in Trinitarian theology, and there's this idea of what they call the divine dance. And my down-to-earth way of explaining it is it's pretzel theology. You ever seen a pretzel? Not the little tiny ones that you get in packets, but the big German ones. Yep. Where's the beginning? There is no beginning. It kind of keeps going and going. Kind of look and where's the beginning, where's the end? That's how God and Jesus are together. So intertwined, so mutually affirming, such a love relationship. And that amazing relationship is an example of the relationship Jesus can have with each one of us. And the language of father and son knowing each other underscores the closeness of their relationship. So the passage links Jesus' knowledge of his sheep to his care for his sheep. That's the other thing. I lay, my I lay down my life for the sheep, is what Jesus says. Now the intimacy of Jesus' relationship to his father is actually introduced way back in chapter 1. As you're kind of with me now, aren't you? Everything's back in chapter 1 because this is, this is the, the gospel closing off what it started, uh, where it says that um, Jesus is close to the Father's heart. Actually, I'll just skip back to get the wording in the ESV. So the ESV uh, says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. Jesus is at the Father's side. That's how close Jesus is to God. And as we go through the Gospel in John 13, there was someone leaning on Jesus' bosom, is literally what it says. So again, the same language is close to Jesus' side. So just as God and just as Jesus is close to the Father's side, we are close to Jesus' side. The love between the Father and the Son, their insurpassable intimacy, is the source from which our relationship with God and Jesus derives. Now, he not only knows Mary by name he knows you and me by name and we recognize his voice now as it turns out right throughout the bible this theme of god knowing us by name comes through so for example there are certain passages 
in the Old Testament. We've read one of them where this is made clear. So in Isaiah 43, it says that we are called by name. Uh, We are his. Uh, We are his sons and daughters brought from afar. Not only does God know his people by name, sometimes he changes their names as a sign of his involvement in their lives. So Abraham becomes, sorry, Abram becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. Jacob becomes Israel. And in the New Testament, Simon becomes Cephas. And the theme of naming as knowing is reinforced through the Bible's narratives too. So uh, um, the people of God are very often the ones who are named. And the enemies of God or the other characters in the stories in the Bible are not named. So what's the name of the Pharaoh? Exactly. We don't know his name. He's just called the king of Egypt. What's the name of the two lowly Hebrew midwives? Shifra and Pua. Again, not many of you will know those names. It's not not names that we've picked up when naming our children, I'd like to note. But there's still an opportunity, maybe from my daughter Elizabeth. Prefer Shifra, I think. But uh, um, back in Exodus, you've got the the ruler of, of, of the land is not named. But these two lowly midwives who are doing God's business are named. God knows the little people. Um, In the book of Ruth, the kinsman redeemer Boaz is named. What's the name of the other redeemer who passes the opportunity by? Exactly. He's not named. Um, Tim Keller points out in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember the rich man and Lazarus parable in Luke 16? Uh, The rich man, unlike Lazarus, is never given a personal name. He's called a rich man. And as Keller puts it, strongly hinting that since he had built his destiny on his wealth rather than on God, once he lost his wealth, he lost any sense of self. So if your life is characterized by faith in and obedience to the Lord, like Shifra, Pua, Boaz, Lazarus and Mary... God knows you by name, and your identity is secure in him. Indeed, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, a book written from the creation of the world. But there's more. God gives us a nickname, it says. So three passages in Isaiah talk about God having a name for us or for certain people among his people, that is not known to anyone else. So just re- you can read the chapters later if you like. Isaiah 56 says that I will give a, a name better than sons and daughters, an everlasting name that will endure forever to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, etc., etc. So an everlasting name in Isaiah chapter 60, uh, 56. Then in Isaiah chapter 62 Uh, The nations will see your vindication, all the kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. And then in Isaiah 65, uh, it says, My servants will sing out of the joy of their hearts. To those servants, God will give another name. It's this nickname idea. It's this idea that God knows us so well, so intimately, so personally that he has another way of referring to us. In the New Testament, we find a similar passage about God giving his people a new name. 
So in Revelation chapter 2, there are two words of encouragement to one of the seven churches that uh, uh, the Apostle John wrote to on behalf of Jesus. Uh, This church is suffering persecution um, and the encouragement that the Lord Jesus gives them is hidden manna. So remember, manna was the food that the Israelites ate for 40 years in the desert that God provided for them. This is hidden manna that will be there to sustain them. The other reference is to a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. And the commentators uh, give all sorts of options here, but no one knows what that's talking about. So basically, all we do know is what I just read to you that somehow there's a new name written on a stone which is only known to God and to the person who receives it. It's that kind of nickname, that beautiful, intimate, personal knowledge. Being given a secret name by God is another way of affirming that someone is known personally to God as a child is known to their parents. Now, what difference does it make if we're known by God by name or known by Jesus by name. Our tears can be wiped away. Um, We're known intimately and personally. It gives us a sense of security and confidence, I suggest. But I think there's two more things that need to be mentioned which are in our passage in John chapter 20. and, And these are those two things. The first thing to notice is that being known personally by Jesus leads to being known by God and becoming part of his family. Now, it's a touching scene in which Jesus says to Mary, don't touch me. Did you notice that? Verse 17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and sisters and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God, and your God. Now, this is one of those moments in John where you need to remember earlier parts of John. Because way back in John chapter 1, verse 12, it says that to whomever receives Jesus, he will give them the right to become children of God. Yeah? To become children of God, to call God their Father. And then right through the Gospel of John, Uh, The idea of Jesus having God as his father occurs some 120 times, and it's often a bone of contention. At one point in John 10, Jesus says that God is his father, and the Jews pick up stones to stone him. So that relationship has been exclusive between Jesus and God. Nowhere else in the Gospel of John does a believer call Jesus their father until we get to this very point right at the end where Jesus says, I'm ascending to my father and your father. So what we have here is really the fulfillment of that opening prologue in John, where it was promised to all who believe in Jesus' name that they would have the right to become children of God and included in his family. Then the second and final thing, What difference does it make that Jesus knows us by name uh, is in verse 18. See verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. So being known by Jesus 
leads to making Jesus known to others. I think sometimes we think there are two steps in the process of mission and evangelism. And I notice on the door that uh, CGCC, took me a while to realize that's you, isn't it? Yep. I thought it was a conference, but it's not, it's you. It's Canterbury Gardens Community Church. Yep. This at you people at CGCC in 2017, that's this year, in case you didn't notice, will be focused on mission. So how's it going? I mean, uh, it's not an easy task, is it, mission? And it can be really tricky in our culture, even to admit to a friend or acquaintance or a workmate that you're a Christian. So what might give us the confidence to take that step in those settings? I get my hair cut. Um, I, I love, I'm, I'm the opposite of Samson with a haircut. Samson felt um, de-energized as his hair grew uh, long. No, no, he felt energized, didn't he? And then when he had his hair cut, he felt uh, energized again. I'm the opposite. I, I, when my hair grows, I just feel um, weak and enervated. And then when I get my hair cut, I feel much stronger again. So that's, what, that's my opening with my barber. So what, what gives me the confidence to talk to my barber about uh, Jesus Christ? Well, I think the missing step is uh, the one before knowing Jesus, namely the one we've been looking at this morning, being known by Jesus. Being known by Jesus leads to knowing Jesus and then to making him known. This comes through three times in the gospel, as it turns out. First of all, back in chapter 1 again, Nathaniel is known by Jesus and uh, he asks in bewilderment, how do you know me? That's the question, 148. Remember Nathaniel says, uh, I saw you under the fig tree. And uh, he knew him. And Nathaniel was just blown away by this. And what happens is that he knows Jesus as the son of God and the king of Israel. And then all of the disciples receive a revelation of Jesus because of Nathaniel's witness. Then in John chapter 4, I think one of the people doing an announcement today stole this bit of my sermon. So uh, in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, um, Jesus knows all about her and she recognizes him finally to be the Messiah. And then she goes back to her town and preaches to them, if you like, that Jesus is the savior of the world and many people come to faith. And then Mary Magdalene here, Jesus calls her by name she knows Jesus as Raboni and Lord, and then she goes and preaches that the Lord is risen. So I put to your friends that the cycle of evangelism might be conceived as a two-step process. People come to know Jesus and then make him known. But I think this misses a crucial step that is prior to and makes the other two steps possible. The three of Jesus' conversations that I've just mentioned teach that being known by Jesus leads to knowing him and making him known and being known by Jesus is the critical and initial step in the process it gives us a confidence to speak to others because our lives are held secure by Jesus and we have that intimate relationship with him having your name known to Jesus and God leads to being a child of God and calling him father and that assurance gives us confidence like Mary to testify to others of the good news of being in a relationship with God. So the Protestant Reformation of which we're the heirs 
underscored the grace of God. The fact that we can come to know God intimately and personally, not by our own efforts, but because it is a gift. And I think this theme underscores that very well for us, friends, doesn't it? Because at the final judgment, we'll be accepted by God because Jesus will say, I knew this one by name. The grace of God is that God knows each one of us intimately and personally. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, uh, for your knowledge of Mary and your knowledge of all your sheep. Uh, Please help each one of us to hear your voice and to respond accordingly. Help us too, Lord, to be committed to mission, to the uh, proclamation of the gospel, to sharing our own faith with others, to owning up to being a Christian at work and uh, in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that Uh, uh, being known in this intimate and personal way gives us confidence in life, gives us a sense of security and can even wipe away our tears. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.